Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hello, Peter. Hey, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a fascinating conversation Peter had with Alex Kasar. He is the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and he literally wrote the book on the Electoral College. It's called Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? And Peter... I have to say that is some great timing on the part of Harvard University Press to bring that title out uh, just a a few weeks ago. Yeah, I I mean, uh, I read it at the tail end of the summer. It's really a great read. It's just full of great political stories. Yes, it's loaded with scholarly insight and you know, historical importance, but it just really makes the history come alive, or at least it did for me. After you hear Peter's convo with Alex Kesar, Peter and I are going to chat a little bit more before we wrap up. So make sure to listen all the way to the end of the episode. With that, over to Peter Kadzis and Alex Kesar. Thank you, Adam. As a political junkie and a history nerd, I can say that the book we'll be discussing today, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College, is one of the most relevant and important books of this 2020 election year. Its author, Alexander Kaysar, is a professor at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Alex, thanks for joining us via the magic of Zoom. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for your kind words about the book. Okay. Well, let's get into it. You know, before we move on to the Electoral College, I wondered if you would say just a few words about the U.S. Constitution, which in our age of social media and mass public opinion could be considered a rather exotic document. It was written by an accomplished group of 18th century aristocrats, establishing not a democracy, but a republic. Alex, what are your thoughts? It's a very good question. I mean, yes, it was a group of 18th century aristocrats, some with much more progressive and liberal leanings than than others, um, like Jefferson, but they certainly all had to be free to give up whatever they were doing and come to Philadelphia for a number of months. They, they didn't have jobs that they were on, on leave from. Uh, they were also all white and all male. Um, as uh, someone quipped over the last few days looking at the, uh, the, hear- the Supreme Court nominees' hearings, that if the originalist position assumes that the Constitution means forever what white men said it meant, uh, when they wrote it. But one further point to, to, to yours, we have to realize that the framers, when they got to Philadelphia, were not, were not sent there to write a new constitution. They were, they were sent to Philadelphia to, to revise the Articles of Confederation, which had been in force already for a, a, about a decade. But many of the framers uh, believed that the Articles of Confederation were really beyond fixing, and so they wrote an entire new constitution. So in a certain sense, it was a coup. Now, that said, these were very, very knowledgeable um, and thoughtful men. And in some respects, when I read the records of the Constitution, um, I'm impressed with their just how thoughtful and smart and informed they were. But they were informed about the world up to the late 18th century and not beyond. 
could you explain just how the Electoral College works and why uh, two recent presidents, George W. Bush and Donald Trump, became president without winning the popular vote? Certainly. Uh, I mean, I can, I, I can try to explain how it works. And um, in the explanation are, are, the, you know, are, are suggestions of its complexity. The different features of the Electoral College are, first, that each state receives a number of electors that is equivalent to the number of members it has in the House of Representatives plus two for senators. So it's mostly proportional to population, but not completely. That's step one. How each state then selects its electors is in the Constitution left up to the state legislature. There is no requirement in the Constitution that there be a popular vote to choose electors. Now, we are accustomed to having popular votes, and that's been the norm uh, for quite a long time, but uh, it, is, it, it would be perfectly constitutional for, for a state legislature to say, we're going to choose electors by ourselves. So th then, you know, with that, within that structure, then you have an election, presumably, as we do in Massachusetts. It's choosing electors equal in number to the number of members of the House and the Senate. Uh, the slate of electors pledged to the candidate who wins the popular vote in the state then uh, is chosen and will convene in December to ca actually cast the electoral votes. They will just meet for an hour or two unless something unusual happens. Those votes then are certified in different methods in different states, sent to Washington where they are counted in Congress uh, and the mechanism through which they are counted is murky. Uh, it is not clear who actually counts uh, the votes. And this has been important on occasions when there were disputes. And then the outcome of that count determines who is president unless, unless none of the candidates receives a majority of the electoral votes. And in that circumstance, the election immediately reverts to the House of Representatives, which will elect the president on a on using a procedure that each state, no matter how large or how small, gets one vote. That's, that's our system. Um, and as you can see, it's not very straightforward. Would I be wrong in saying that this may be the most complicated system in among all the democracies in the world? As far as I know, it is. Yeah. It, it, it is, you know, I mean, especially for a system, you know, some systems get a little bit complicated when they're trying, or the complications come in when they're trying to, say, apportion seats in a 600-seat legislature. But this is an election to just choose an executive, to choose one person, and it is, uh, it is, it is the most complicated one that I know of, and notably, no country has ever imitated it. No, I mean it strikes me that if you you, you take two two internationally known institutions that are not known for democratic principles, by that I mean Harvard University and say the Vatican, 
they elect their leaders in a more straightforward way than we do. <laughs> right, right, right. It's more straightforward. Maybe, but, but not necessarily more democratic, but more straightforward. No, but at least it's more straightforward. Right, right. Um, and listen, just a, a footnote, something that just occurred to me. Um, you mentioned many of the things that aren't spelled out about the Electoral College. Am I correct? Um, nowhere in the U.S. Constitution is the right to vote spelled out. Well, that, that's correct. The, the right, there, there is no right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. The phrase is not mentioned until the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, and there it is mentioned in terms of a negative, in terms of depriving the right to vote. There is no grant of uh, the right to vote or no, no affirmative statement in the U.S. Constitution that anybody has a right to vote. And let me take it a step further. Um, in presidential elections, as was made clear by Justice Scalia in the Bush v. Gore dispute, in presidential elections, there is no right whatsoever to vote for president, precisely because of this feature that I mentioned before, that state legislatures can choose electors. We, in, in, in any given state, we have a popular election if and when the state legislature says we're going to have a popular election. So there's no right to vote at all. Looking ahead, I, I, I don't want to get a sidetrack. Um, after November 3rd, there sounds like there could be plenty of ambiguity for someone to challenge the results that emerge after November 3rd. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the uh, scenarios that I and a number of other people who, uh, who spend a lot of time thinking about uh, these scenarios, one of the scenarios that, that concerns me would be is that in, quotes, the battleground states or in some battleground states, you could have a slow count. You could have challenges to a lot of the uh, absentee or mail-in ballots. Um, and so there would be disputes um, about this. And then at, that, at some point, one can imagine a legislature intervening and saying, um, time is running short. We have a deadline by which we have to you know, certify our electoral votes. So, and, and you folks can't sort out the election. So we are going to choose uh, electors by ourselves. Six of the battleground states have, ent have entirely Republican legislatures. Very interesting. If the legislature did such a thing, they it would probably end up with, say, two sets of electors or electoral votes being forwarded from the state to Congress. One might come from the governor, who was a Democrat. One might come from the legislature. You would, I mean, there would be a great deal of work for lawyers in this scenario. It would then be up to Congress to decide which slate of electors or which electoral votes to certify as the correct ones. And that's where the murkiness of the congressional procedure would come into play. So there is room for uh, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of conflict. Well, and this helps explain to our listeners um, why there is so much concern about Amy Coney Barrett and how she might or might not act if she is named to the court. No, that's absolutely correct. It's, you know, I'm not consulted by uh, President Trump's advisors or the people in his campaign, but I think that they would have some concerns with the court as constituted now or even with the court before Justice Ginsburg had died, they would have some concerns about getting 
uh, a majority for their favored positions. I think that uh, Justice Roberts might not be uh, as pliable as some of the others. And I think that that's why they want uh, Judge Barrett. Well, listen, let's move back in time to 1816. There was a, a very clear attempt then um, to establish a direct popular vote for president in that year. Could you explain what happened? Sure. Uh, this was, uh, I mean, uh, you know, backing up a little bit, the idea of having a direct popular vote had been discussed in Philadelphia at the Constitutional Convention. It was discussed briefly. Um, there was some support for it. James Madison supported it, uh, which uh, surprises people the, these days. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of support for it for a variety of reasons. But then, you know, the Electoral College, or what we now call the Electoral College, was very unpopular from the beginning. I mean, it was, you know, it malfunctioned. The parties gamed the system to create this winner-take-all mechanism, you know, so that if you win a state, you get all of its electoral votes. That's not in the Constitution either. That was basically created by the dominant political parties in each state. And so by, by the time you got to uh, the 18-teens, uh, there was a tremendous amount of sentiment for getting rid of winner-take-all and requiring states to use district elections, and then, and then maybe also getting rid of this contingent process if it goes to the House. So there are debates about that. And in fact, the Senate approves a constitutional amendment four times during this period. They never quite get it through the House. But in the midst of those debates, a senator from Pennsylvania, Abner Laycock, whom I don't know very much about, uh, but Abner Laycock stands up on the floor of the Senate and says, if we're talking about bringing the election closer to the people by using districts, wouldn't it be simpler and more straightforward to just have a national vote? And then he goes on and spells out the reason it would unify the nation. Um, and he thought it would. some people raised objections about uh, would it be logistically possible? And he said, well, let's, let's, you know, let's go take a look at these logistical things. I think we can probably handle it. And then, to the surprise of some people, at least, a number of other senators began standing up and saying, you know, actually, this is a pretty good idea. Well, you know, why, why don't we do it this way? I mean, there were objections of different sorts in the early phases of the debate, but uh, Rufus King, who had been at the convention in 1787 and who was a, a leader of the Federalists, stood up and said, you know, this is a good idea. We should let's look closely at this. Let's maybe do this. And then Southern senators began to weigh in. Uh, and they stood up and said, basically, this is not acceptable to the South, because if we switch to a national popular vote, then we, meaning white Southerners, will lose all influence and power on behalf of our enslaved population. And thus, uh, it is not acceptable. And James Barber of Virginia, a very important leader in the Senate, um, stood up and said, uh, I forget the exact wording, but it's something like, uh, God has seen fit to give us a population anomalous that is both human and property, meaning slaves. And he, th he, had, he thought that it was, it was absolutely correct that Southern states receive electoral votes um, on behalf of their slaves. And with a national vote, they would lose it. So he would not even support 
sending it to a committee uh, to, to discuss. And the intervention of the Southerners just killed the subject. It, the issue of having a national popular vote did not show up on the floor of the Senate again until 1950. It, it prompts me to make a wise crack that I think uh, Senator Mitch McConnell might have felt very much at home in the old Confederacy. It, it is very hard for me, um, and in the book, you know, as you know, I spend a lot of time talking about the South in the late 19th century and into the 20th century and how they blocked these reforms then with, and with very disingenuous arguments. Um, but yet it is very difficult for me to hear Mitch McConnell and some of his allies without hearing very strong resonances of these senators that I've written about historically. Let's flash forward to the 1960s. And that was a time when I think most people recognize when there was a real spirit of individual freedom in the air. Uh, culturally, economically, politically. And it was during this time that Congress almost amended the Constitution to move the nation to a direct popular presidential vote. What happened? The Southerners struck again? Right. Well, I think the first part of the, of the story about why it happened, I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. Um, and, it, that, and there may be a little note of promise in, this, in terms of future reform, Basically, uh, in the 1950s and into the 1960s, a, a movement built for a national popular vote outside of Congress and in Congress. It was spearheaded by, in the Senate by Birch Bayh and in the House by Emanuel Seller. It, and it had bipartisan support. I mean, there was a lot of support within Congress. They built the support in the course of the 60s. And support from outside, you know, for example, when we talk about diverse support, they had the support of the American Bar Association, the Chamber of Commerce, and the AFL-CIO, and the League of Women Voters. Um, so, uh, you know, they, it, this, this was a popular thing. Um, and they got the amendment through the House by an 82% vote which is extraordinary. I mean, you need two-thirds for a constitutional amendment. They got 82%. They were well above the bar. It was extraordinary. And it was believed that it would then move through the Senate pretty quickly. But what happened then, in effect, is that the Southern leadership of parts of the con of the Senate, including the Judiciary Committee, which is responsible for constitutional amendments, stalled and delayed and held things back for a year. Uh, while a number of other divisive issues were also coming up uh, for the Senate, divisive in terms of a north-south uh, strain or tension. And in the end, when they finally got that resolution to the floor of the Senate, it was defeated twice uh, by filibusters. They could not, the cloture votes, the, the, the motions to end debate and move to a substantive vote failed by about four or five votes. They had the support of, you know, 57 uh, senators, maybe a few more. Uh, so they had a majority of the Senate that had already won in the House. Um, President Nixon, the, the Senate vote comes in 1970. President Nixon had said he would support it. Uh, and the polls indicated there was a good chance, not certain, but there was a good chance that it would be ratified by the states. So we came very close to... Uh, jettisoning this mechanism uh, almost precisely 50 years ago. 
to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's going to be another 50 years. I'm speaking figuratively, but it's going to be another long haul before we get a shot, a reasonable shot of um, amending the Constitution. In the meantime, what's going on in the states to try to mitigate the tyranny of the Electoral College? Well, it's a very good question. But I, I would preface my comment by saying I'm not quite as pessimistic as you are. Um, I think that might depend on what happens in this election and whether the Republican Party falters in some serious way. As long as the Republican Party believes that the Electoral College is, works to its advantage and has enough strength to block reform, you know, you're absolutely right. But I think there's a lot of popular sentiment out there now in favor of uh, Electoral College reform. Meanwhile, in the states, there have been two kinds of uh, ideas, ventures floating around. One, which seems to show up periodically is to have states get rid of winner-take-all by themselves and just switch to a district or proportional system. And this idea comes up, people explore it, sometimes there are even uh, you know, the discussions within state legislatures. It's an unlikely scenario for progress because it would mean that the first states to do it, the first movers, as they say, the experimenters, would seem to lose political influence in contrast to those who stuck with winner-take-all. If Massachusetts is, is going to divide up its electoral votes, it's not as big a prize as a state of comparable size. But the other thing that has been going on is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is an idea that first appeared on the scene in 2006. Um, it is a scheme being promoted by an organization, a couple of key people really starting in California, and they are proposing a, a way to change the system without amending the Constitution. Stated briefly, what the compact does is, is to, it asks states to join the compact. And if a state joins the compact, it pledges to cast its electoral votes, not for the person who won the state, but for the person who won the national popular vote. And this compact would take effect only when states with 270 electoral votes, a majority of all electoral votes, um, had signed on. Uh, now, a lot of states have signed on to this, including Massachusetts. Um, and uh, in fact, there are, I think that the, the tally now is that states and jurisdictions, including D.C., with 196 electoral votes have signed on, but 270 are needed for it to take effect. Whether the compact will continue to make progress is something that we don't know. It's, it has not made much progress in recent years or in any years in Republican states. And whether it can do that and then whether it could also survive legal challenges is unclear. But it's been a remarkable political effort to get this far. Well, Alex, I wanted to thank you. I, I want to recommend that all our listeners read Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College. It's a fascinating political history. It's full of personalities, conflicts, high ideals, low dealing. I mean, it makes 
the story of our Constitution or this chapter really come alive in the way that anyone who follows public affairs would really appreciate. But before we go, any final thought? I mean, I guess the final thought goes back to what I was saying really about the, about the framers. Um, I don't think we should be hesitant about thinking about modifying a constitution that was written 230 years ago. Uh, I think almost all of the framers, if they were looking at the situation today, would say, let's change it. I mean, actually, Madison and Jefferson both were strong proponents of electoral college uh, reform in the 1820s. So I think we should... Uh, they were practical men trying to build an institution for their time, and I think we should take the same approach. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. So, Peter, I had two big thoughts as I listened to your discussion with Kesar. The first is, as someone who had been hoping that we might get a clean resolution on election night or soon after, I need to tamp down my hopes because there are so many ways in which things could get ugly in the coming weeks. I've been trying not to think about it, trying to, you know, hope for the best without getting ahead of myself. And the conversation completely destroyed that. The other thing that <laughs> it got me thinking about is I, I am not by temperament an originalist when it comes to thinking about the Constitution. It seems so obvious to me that historical documents are created in a particular context, whether it's the Bible or the Constitution. But to me, the story he tells about the Electoral College makes it so abundantly clear that the founders, whatever their skills and gifts, did not have all the answers. It just blows me away that you can know about how the Electoral College works and think otherwise. Well, no, I, 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 I can't argue with that. I've always had, I, I was going to say, a fatalistic approach to the United States Constitution which is that it is what it is. I mean, it, it's, um, I was about to make the mistake a lot of people make and say it's the oldest written constitution still in effect. That's not true. The Massachusetts state constitution upon which the U.S. constitution was based is, of course, older. But that's the rule book. And the rules are certainly... Um, mighty darn eccentric by 21st century standards, but those are the rules. And I think one of the problems the Democrats have had recently, and certainly the progressives uh, have, is they've gotten out of the habit of knowing how to win elections. Now, look, since Trump has been elected um, by a minority, but nevertheless, since he took office, since he won in the Electoral College, the Democrats have more or less cleaned up at um, uh, special elections, in the midterm elections. Um, it's too early to say for sure how they're going to do, uh, you know, on November 3rd. But there are many, many indications that look like they'll do well at the state level and will do better than expected uh, in the U.S. Senate. I'm saying better than expected, say, just 12 months ago. You know, look, in 2009, when the 111th Congress was seated, Barack Obama was president, and the Democrats had a supermajority in the Senate and, you know, 
a supermajority in the House, too. Um, what happened since 2009? I'm going to let that question, that's not what we're talking about here today. But a lot certainly unraveled since then. And if the Democrats do well um, at the polls on November 3rd, I think the nation is going to wake up in January of 2021 and find that things are um, still mighty, mighty rocky in Washington, D.C. If Biden is president, we'll have a much politer president, a more civil um, president. But things are going to be pretty fractious because the Democrats will only have, if they have a majority in the Senate, it's going to be razor thin. What's happened is as our politics, our politics have become more polarized. Everyone knows that. Um, But they've become more polarized as the divide between urban and rural, between the coasts and the heartlands have happened. And the fact of the matter is that the Republicans have enjoyed a geographic advantage. They don't have all the people, but they have the land mass. Um, And until the Democrats can, you know, retake that land mass, until they can hold a supermajority in both houses, as they did in 1965, and as they did in 1977, and as I just said, as they did in 2009, that's when things can really get done. Um, Am I making sense or am I being too abstract? No, I think you are. Let me take a crack at paraphrasing you, and you can tell me if I'm getting you right or wrong. Because I'm being such a blow-up. No, no, I just want to make sure that that I'm thinking this through the right way. Are you saying effectively... Democrats and progressives need to stop whining about how the system isn't built the way it should be and reconcile themselves to working within the system as it is to affect the kind of change they want to create. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Very well said. Much better. (laughs) Much better than I was saying. Um, Look, I'm not saying the system is perfect, but that's the system we have. All the hot air that goes into complaining about it should be focused on policy. The Democrats as a national party need to find out how can they win back more conservative voters. I mean, that's it. More conservative, more moderate voters. They've been doing it for three and a half years. Um, So they're on the right track. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Alex Kasar for making time to talk to Peter, and of course to you for taking time to listen. We'd love to hear from you. You can talk back to us via email. We're at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, capital K-A-D-Z-I-S. We'll talk to you again next week. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.